WTMJ's Adam Roberts with you. I am joined by a very special guest, a conversation that I've been meaning to have for quite some time. This has been a process months in the making, and I hope that you and myself will take away a lot from this conversation. I am joined today by the author, co-author of the book, My Two Elaine's Learning, Coping, and Surviving as an Alzheimer's Caregiver. He is the former governor of Wisconsin, has worn many hats over his public and private life. I'm joined today by Marty Schreiber. Marty, thank you so much. Adam, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I wanted to start our conversation with a little bit of a look back. I mentioned at the beginning of this that this has been a process months in the making to get you here to our WTMJ studios. This all began months ago when I was having a conversation with Vince Vitrano on Wisconsin's Morning News about, uh, I believe it was a study at the time from the University of Cincinnati on strawberries, berries, etc., and their impact on brain development, or in this case, de-development over the course of a person's life. And that led to you leaving me a very wonderfully written, handwritten, I might add, note with a copy of the book and interest in coming to speak with me today. So what inspired you from hearing that, just what I would consider a quick little thought to Vince, what inspired you to reach out in the first place? Basically, if there's one thing worse than Alzheimer's, it's ignorance of the disease. And what I wanted to do was to reach out so that WTMJ uh, and you and Vince uh, might understand and appreciate how important it is for people to better understand this disease. And uh, uh, with, within that framework, then, if, if we can have a better understanding of what dementia is all about, I think we can go a long way in helping many, many people live their best lives possible. And I'll touch a little bit on a personal angle to this uh, a little bit later on in our conversation. But you mentioned that quote, that if there's one thing worse than Alzheimer's, it's ignorance of the disease. It's right on your about page on the Alzheimer's Association. And I feel like for such a long time, Marty, and you allude to this a little bit in your book as well, a lot of that quote can be tied back to people convincing themselves when they first hear about the diagnosis, whether it's them or a loved one oh, it's not as bad as this initial diagnosis says it is. I can overcome this disease. My loved one, they'll get better. And it's, they, it, you get this thought in your head that you can overcome it, even though we sit here today and there still is no cure for Alzheimer's disease. Over the course of your time as both a caregiver and now in life post-Elaine, have you seen a shift in general with people's willingness to accept that initial diagnosis in news, that breaking news to you that you or someone you know has this disease? I, I wish I could say yes, I have seen it, but I, I haven't. And I think one of the issues is uh, that the medical profession uh, is not doing as good of a job as possible to help a caregiver and also the person who is diagnosed with this disease. They're not helping, giving them a better understanding how they might be able, notwithstanding this horrible disease, but they're not giving the caregiver and their loved one a better understanding how they can live their best lives possible. And if you don't better understand this disease, what you try and do is to keep your loved one in your own world. And because the disease is of the nature it is, there is no way that I could have kept Elaine in my world. 
And as long as I tried to keep her in my world, there was more anxiety, frustration, despair, both on her part as well as on my part. I want to read a passage from the book, uh, if you'd be allowing me to do so, on that thought that really stuck out to me early on when reading. Alzheimer's separates you from people you work with, play cards with, attend ball games with, worship with, or I should say the people you used to do those things with before caregiving took over your life. And then the line that really hit me, I have it underlined here in the book, they still love you, but they simply don't know how to respond. And I look now as I am witnessing this dementia, I'm witnessing dementia firsthand impacting a very dear loved one in my own family. I think about how in the book you say you wish you had leaned on family more in the early stages of care for Elaine to give you time to recharge, to have a life outside of caregiving. So I wonder what can family members or caregivers of those living with dementia and Alzheimer's take away from your lived experience so that they are able to have their own identity? Well, I think it begins with the caregiver himself. Uh, for example, uh, I was arrogant and I was self-centered and I felt I could do everything myself and I also felt I didn't need any help from anybody. And because of that, the pressure and the anxiety and the depression and the lack of taking care of myself led to, uh, well, it, 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 it led to frustration and, 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 and it led to a type of uh, uh, irrational irritability in which I was not really very helpful to Elaine and also not very helpful to myself because I couldn't function. And so... If I would have understood that it is of courage and bravery to ask for help, if I could have understood that to ask for help means you're not giving up, if I could underst have understood that just a respite of an hour, say a, a, a week to be by myself would have helped me be a better caregiver, if, if it would have been for those better understandings, and uh, I could have done that by having my loved ones, my family, uh, understand what this disease is all about and to have them understand also our best hope for a good life is to join the world of the person who is ill. I wanted to backtrack and ask you about that early stage of her diagnosis because much of the story surrounding Elaine focused on your work as a caregiver during the 18 years with the disease, but many people forget, and you mentioned this in the book, in those earliest years of diagnosis in the mid-2000s, she was the one caring for you when you were going through diagnosis of your own, of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. What from that period of your life did you take away later on that helped you when the roles of caregiving were reversed? Well, when I, when I think about it, I, I knew always that I had a very loving, caring wife, not Hodgkin's lymphoma or not. And so with, with, within that framework, with all of the things she had done to support my campaigns and my, my work and, and my careers, with all of those things that she had done, and then with, with her diagnosis, I began to more clearly see why she was fading away from me. And I then also began to understand that 
although hope springs eternal, there was not going to be any hope. And then I began to understand how can I help us live our best lives possible. Uh, so at, at one, one point or another, um, you have the fortune of marrying a wonderful life partner, and you have unfortunate things happen. And I could have either screamed and yelled, which I did sometimes, or in addition to that, I can say, I have this situation. How can I make the best of it? And that therein was the challenge. And Elaine, if I would run for office and I would uh, lose an election, she would never let me feel defeated. And I think of all the things that she, uh, I remember about how I might help her is the fact that while we may not have things going our way, I would never let myself feel defeated. And I think that is what helped give me the strength and the determination to try and help Elaine as the best caregiver possible. It's been about two years since Elaine passed away. Have you felt in that time that has passed since, where we sit today, have you felt a sense of relief knowing that your time as a caregiver was over, or is the overwhelming feeling of loss and sadness still the main feeling you are left with? I don't, under any circumstances, feel relief that caregiving is over. I do, however, feel that I could not have asked Elaine to live for one hour, one moment longer than she did. The advanced, the advanced impact of this disease on a person with Alzheimer's, uh, incapable of taking care of yourself, and when I say inability to take care of yourself, I mean in every in every physical bodily ac- activity. And so uh, I, I, in, in, in a way I was relieved for her that she did no longer have to carry on in, in the situation uh, that she was in, not knowing, remembering, and again, not able to help herself in, in any way uh, uh, possible. So uh, I just... I'm, I'm grateful that we had the life that we did. And I, I, I want to mention at this time the title of my book is My Two Elaines. But in the second Elaine, there were many Elaines. There was the Elaine who was first diagnosed, who at times got very angry with me because she thought I was too controlling in respect of saving her. Then there was the Elaine uh, who was confined to a wheelchair. Then there was the Elaine who couldn't remember my name. Then there was the Elaine who couldn't uh, help feed herself. And so there were many, many Elaines. And in a way, I was maybe pretty fortunate because I had a chance to love someone in many different ways, at many different times. And, uh, uh, oh gosh, it was discouraging. Uh, Any caregiver that is listening, I want to say I understand the challenge. I understand how difficult it is. I want you to know you are a hero, but I do want to acknowledge that by far you are one of the most loving, caring people in the world, and uh, you're doing the best you can, and that's all we can do is the best. I hope for that, too, because like I mentioned, this is going through my family now, and the caregiver who is taking on this role, I personally know that they have this feeling like they're on an island, and I know that this is someone who is going through this disease who I 
have so many amazing memories with. I haven't seen this person physically in three plus years, COVID or otherwise. Do you, I guess I'm trying to figure out how I want to phrase this question. Is it wrong that I haven't approached as a grandson to ask for help? Because I have this feeling, I'm just being candid, I have this feeling I want to be there for this person, but I also don't want to interrupt their normal, the person suffering and the person caretaking. They've established a norm, and I fear that entering into that could throw them off completely, and I don't want to feel like I'm the result of their world being thrown in a completely different direction. I think as a loving, caring person, that should be the least of your worries. Uh, just to share an example, so Elaine and I are having lunch at assisted living, and she started to cry. And I said, Elaine, why are you crying? Well, she says, I'm beginning to love you more than my husband. Well, I didn't ask her what was wrong with your turkey husband, but what I did do was understand that it was not necessary for her to know my name in order for our hearts to touch, and that our hearts can touch by holding hands, by giving a hug, by singing a song together, by just being with one another and not knowing my name. In thinking about visiting with someone with dementia, we have to understand that Alzheimer's dementia is not a chicken casserole disease. So, for example, if I uh, have uh, heart surgery or if I have hip surgery, for example, and lead up, people will bring me chicken casserole. But because people don't understand Alzheimer's, they don't know how to act. And, and it's not that they're mean. It's not that they're uncaring. It's not that they're unloving. But because it's strange and, 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 and because we don't understand this disease, we tend to stay away. And I think if we, if we do that, uh, tend to stay away, I, I think what, 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 is, what is happening is I think we ourselves then are losing the opportunity to bring uh, some kind of good feelings and hope. Uh, but also, I think by staying away, the caregiver may begin to feel abandoned and deserted because all these wonderful people, all of a sudden, because they don't understand this disease, are no longer in contact. And if anything can be done to give support to the caregiver and to the loved one who is ill, uh, that should be done. It's going to make a difference in their lives. So I would, I would say to, to you and, and also to anyone else who might be in a similar situation, uh, the caregiver needs to be acknowledged for having one of the toughest jobs. And I think the person as the patient, the loved one, certainly could have a nice friendly hug or a nice friendly handshake or a smile. And uh, uh, it, would, it would be my thinking that uh, to, to go ahead and, and I, I would say that you would be bringing brightness and an additional uh, kind of a, of, a, of a spirit, a positive kind of thing to, to, to both caregiver and, and to the person who is ill by, by you giving a call and saying hello. And it's easy to do it. Uh, you know, again, I, it's easy to do to, to, to have someone uh, live their best possible life, particularly when they do have those challenges of, uh, of dementia. I know in the time since My Two Elaines was published, and we're talking with former Wisconsin Governor Marty Schreiber, co-author of the book, 
people have lauded you for speaking so frankly on this subject. It's an area that I know from experience that people have struggled to even just begin a conversation on. And one of the things that stands out to me in the book is that you don't mince words on the reality that caregivers and their loved ones will face in this journey they're about to undertake. Have you given a lot of thought to what your legacy will be, given all of your accomplishments, both in the political sphere and also in advancing this conversation? Has that ever crossed your mind at all? No, I, 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 uh, I can't say that I haven't. Um, I guess I may be more worried about what people are going to say and think about me while I'm alive, much less after I kick <laughs> off. And, uh, uh, but uh, I, I tell you, I know the book helps people. I, I get cards and letters and phone calls, and after I give my talks, people come up and, and tell me that, that they have, have now a better understanding of, of this disease and how to be a better caregiver. And that's my life now. I mean, uh, of, of, of all the things that I do that brings me joy, I'm not a golfer. But I could imagine what a golfer feels when they hit a hole-in-one pretty good. Done it one time. Okay. It felt amazing. Well, then, uh, but that's how I feel when I talk with people and they tell me that the book has been helpful to them or when I talk to a group of people and, and someone might share uh, what they're going through and how that made a difference in their life. And so uh, I don't have to pay for a caddy. I don't have to pay for a golf cart, and I don't have to lose any golf balls. And so I'm way ahead of the game. I will say, if you're ever up for a round at a Milwaukee County golf course over the summer, I will gladly carry the bag for you, Marty. <laughs> Not a problem at all. I want to touch a couple more things before I let you go here. We've talked a lot in this conversation about your private life as a caretaker, but I don't want to gloss over the impact your life in public service has had on a state that you've called home for your entire life, much like myself. And I think we live in or we are in a unique position right now in Wisconsin where the eyes of much of the country are going to be on us this year. It's a very critical year. And as a state that's been divided in that world for so long, I was curious to know, do you, as someone who's been in this position before, do you ever think we're going to get to a place again in Wisconsin specifically where we'll ever have the kind of bipartisan support for a state governor, both in Madison and then in the public eye, that allows us to get things done. Because I think a lot of the conversation in Wisconsin has been, we want to progress the state forward, that's our motto, but it's hard to do when there's such division. I think, I think if we can get a fair reapportionment plan uh, to make sure that there is an established balance uh, in the people that are elected. Uh, when you have districts that are so drastically uh, tilted towards one side or another, you, at that point, then get the people who are either the most liberal or the most conservative who are running for office, and because the district is so either liberal or, or conservative as drawn, those that are most liberal and most conservative get elected, and the people who the vast majority of people who are in the middle, that, that middle 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 percent of, of, of the political spectrum, those are the people that suffer. And those are the people that are being disadvantaged because of the imbalance of, of, of the legislative bodies and so forth. So, yes, I think we're going to get there. And uh, we're going through a phase right now. Uh, I, I believe that people are going to begin to understand that uh, we can... Uh, make 
progress for our communities and for our state by, by better realizing the opportunities of working together rather than the opportunities of trying to destroy one another. And to that end, I'll leave you with this question, Marty. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. So I am the back half of the millennial generation. I'm 30 years old, and I feel most people my age, we're starting to really just get into our own and whatever our career might be. For me, it's broadcasting. For others, it's the medical world. For others, it's law. I fear sometimes for people my age, there's this overarching feeling of fear that we are behind, we're lagging behind where previous generations were at this point in their lives due to any number of factors, take your pick, despite the fact we all want to make the world a better place. I'm just, I want to ask you and reflecting on the successes and failures of your public life and otherwise, what advice would you impart on the next generation of leaders who might be feeling this way? I'd say not to worry. Um, and, and the reason I say not to worry, you, you can sit back and worry, or you can say, okay, uh, I want to become more, inva- uh, more active, maybe as a voter, or I want to become more inva- active in supporting one political candidate or one political party or another. Um, I think it's going to work out fine. Uh, at, at a point in time, uh, there will be an additional spark of passion uh, towards uh, uh, strengthening our democratic process. Uh, there's going to be that concern about making sure our kids get a decent quality education. There's going to be concern about making people, making sure people are treated fairly. So I don't, think, I don't think you should have to worry a second. I think all you have to do is just go out and figure your area of interest and, and try and make it better. Uh, glory be. I think that's 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 going to really uh, leave leave a legacy for for you and for your generation. Marty Schreiber joining us on WTMJ. I really appreciate the effort both you and Marilyn put into making this happen. I'm glad we could make it happen, and I uh, hope to hear more great things from you in the future. Adam, thank you very much.